Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Happy one year anniversary, babe. That's wild. Yeah, it's uh, it's been one year since we started Bad Dad, Rad Dad, and now it's just a part of our lives. <laughs> it's kind of hard to imagine a time where it wasn't. Yeah. And yet when I think back to this time last year, we had recorded our first episode, what, three times? <laughs> yeah. Had a few ears on it, agonized about it. Mm-hmm. Wondered if it was worth it. Questioned all reality. Who even are we? Yeah. What the heck even? And now, as you like to say, we got a pod. <laughs> Rocking the pod. But congratulations. Like, uh, this is a lot of work and... The fact that, you know, we've stuck with it and we still look forward to doing it every week. At least I do. <laughs> I love sitting down with you and talking about movies every week. I like it too. And a big thank you to all of you who have listened to us for a year. That is also wild. And it'll never stop being strange that people actually want to hear us talk. Yeah. And when we learn that, you know, there's people... In New Zealand, there's people in the UK, there's people in the States that we've never met that will listen to us week to week. Thank you. Yeah. Just a couple little guys. We like talking about movies. Yeah. And we're thankful that even one person wants to listen to us. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Whether you've been listening for a whole year or this is the first time you've ever listened. Thank you. Very grateful. Yeah. Okay. So awards watch. We're recording this the day after the Oscars. All of it's been leading to this. <laughs> all of it. All of it. The whole pod? No, all <laughs> of my Oscar preambles. Right. All yes. Of, all of my awards talk, which I know 
you're just like, what the heck even? I even kind of had, <laughs> I, was, I was thinking today of just like, I've been watching all of this and paying attention to all of this lead up to the Oscars and people's predictions and what is kind of picking up traction and stuff. And it, at the end of the day, it's kind of like, who cares? Because like most of them are wrong for like the most part. And it's just like whatever wins, wins. Even if like your favorite movie ever, even if you hate everything everywhere all at once, it doesn't really matter that's one because you have favorite stuff that didn't win awards and you can still like yeah. that favorite stuff. Um, Paul Mescal. Yeah. <laughs> he's going to win an Oscar one day though. That's- and he's sure beautiful to look at. I have to say before we get too much into what watching the Oscars was like for us, that film Twitter makes me so sad. And I hope, you know, those of you who've been listening to us for any amount of time, we try and speak about film and life openly with like a receptivity to like what's being offered to us and with a um, a sense of joy. Mm-hmm. And the amount of negativity just like shitting on what did win, what didn't win on film Twitter and kind of in other spaces of the internet right now just makes me so sad. Mm-hmm. Um, I try even, even when I don't like something to not come at it from such a place of like vitriol. Um, so yeah, we're not going to do that. Let's just talk about what it was like to watch the Oscars. Yeah. I mean, it was something I was really looking forward to because Everything Everywhere All at Once is one of our favorite films of the last year. It's a landmark for the pod. Big First time. guest episode, bought a house in the theater. Yeah. If you have not listened to our episode where we watched Everything Everywhere All at Once for the first time, highly recommend. It's episode six. The film's so nice, we reviewed it twice. It's on episode eight as well. <laughs> but I would recommend listening to episode six. I think we had a really beautiful conversation about it um, mm-hmm. with our guest, Jeremy. And I'm really glad that that's recorded. And it was before the hype, before, thankfully, so many people saw the beauty in this film. I'm so glad that they did. But, you know, we were early adopters and uh, it made us ball like babies. It made us feel so many things. And regardless of what anybody else thought of it, we really loved it. And I think it enabled us to have one of my favorite conversations we've ever had on the show and we've had many conversations that, I, that I've really loved, but particularly that segment of episode six, I find really wonderful. So if you haven't listened to it, episode six, and if you have, why not revisit it? <laughs> I, uh, I was really excited with the outcome of the Oscars. And I, I've, re- I've kind of put down some facts and some things that I thought were extremely awesome and really cool and interesting um, about some of the outcomes. I mean, first of all, uh, a historic sweep <laughs> for everything, everywhere, all at once. It won seven Oscars, which is one of the most that a Best Picture winner has ever won. Like, even the last one to do it was Slumdog Millionaire, and they didn't even win acting awards for for it, which is... And, yeah. and like, the fact that everybody that could win for... Everywhere, everything, everywhere, all at once, with the exception of supporting, which had two people in it, it won, mm-hmm. which is really, really impressive. Um, I, I was looking things up about it. Everything, everywhere, all at once is the most awarded movie of all time. 
That's wild. It pre-Oscars, it won 158 awards. Post-Oscars, so it won seven. It has 165. Previously, the the uh, record holder was Lord of the Rings, Return of the King with 101. Whoa, so it's substantially more. Yeah. And I feel like part of what's enabled that is that because it was an indie movie, is an indie movie, it qualified for other awards that something like Lord of the Rings or Titanic or Avatar wouldn't qualify for because they're big budget films, right? Well, and this is something that I've been trying to avoid the cesspool that can be filmed Twitter and just trying to like seek out the positives and like this win for everything everywhere, it kind of redefines what a Oscar movie is or what should like what an award bait movie could be. Like something that I was kind of thinking about and I've I've heard a few people say it is that in a couple of years people will be asked the question when they like future filmmakers, when they go into film school will be asked the question of like, what brought you here? Like what made you want to become a filmmaker? And I feel like people will say everything everywhere all at once because it is, it is such an ambitious film, but it was executed on a small, smaller budget and by smaller groups of people that found ways to make even like the simplest or most complex, complex things achievable. The complex thing for me becomes this movie would be one of my favorites, whether it won any awards or not. Yeah. Um, and I actually don't believe in any merit to the Oscars whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I believe it's largely about what kind of marketing team you have. Um, and I don't believe that often the winners are the best movies of the year. Occasionally, I agree with their choices like Parasite, but very often I don't. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I'm in this like paradoxical place of being so happy and yet kind of cynical at the same time. But like what does having all of the awards do to this movie that I love so much? And I also know so many people that like refuse to watch Best Pictures. Right. That are just like, oh, it won. It's got to be just like Oscar drivel. You know, like when you said it's going to redefine what Oscar bait is, I don't want anything to be Oscar bait. Yeah, and I, I guess I don't mean that negatively. I think I, I mean like it redefines what like if a movie like Tar were to win or a movie like The Fablemans were to have won. Fablemans seems like the one that fits. I actually feel like movies like Tar don't often win. It's usually ones that have a little bit more. I went back and looked at like the list of Oscar movies and I was actually surprised how many of them were kind of just like big budget movies I've never seen, like The Departed and um, things like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I actually feel like it's not the Tars and the Banshees of Inisherin that often win, although they are often nominated. Yeah. Well, something else that I learned, like that I learned about this, which is kind of huge and like speaks to what I'm talking about, is this is the first science fiction film to win Best Picture. And that's cool. Like that. The fact that like Jamie Lee Curtis is getting up there and thanking horror movie fans. Oh, that was a, there's a lot of film Twitter awfulness about Jamie Lee Curtis winning. And I would have personally loved for Stephanie Hsu to win. And I thought Hong Chao was the best part of The Whale, which Mm -hmm. was a film I didn't particularly like. But that was a really beautiful moment for me as a horror fan to have Jamie Lee Curtis get up on that stage and thank specifically genre movie fans mm-hmm. because they're so often genre movies are so often not considered award worthy. Yeah. So I, I really 
most of the speeches at the Oscars this year were just so wonderful. So, yeah. so wonderful. Yeah. Even like Brendan Fraser, who like we've been very vocal about not thinking Whale was... The Whale was not one of our favorite films that we saw of last year. And we have some issues with it on a wider scale than just not liking the movie. Yeah. But when we were watching, what seeing Brendan Fraser, who I think from what I can tell is a very lovely person is somebody that deserves an Oscar. Maybe it wasn't for necessarily for this. Like I kind of compared him to Joaquin Phoenix where like, I don't think that that Joker was his best performance, but Joaquin Phoenix should have an Oscar in terms of, you know, whatever clout having an Oscar can bring one person. Mm -hmm. Um, Another beautiful moment was, I mean, we were all rooting for Michelle Yeoh to win best actress. And not only the fact that she was the first Asian actress to win Best Actress, but the fact that the person that presented it was the first and only other person of color who has ever won in ha- in Halle Berry. For Best Actress. For Best Actress, yeah. So the first woman to have done the woman of color to have done it, presenting the award to the second woman of color, is a be- very beautiful moment. It's beautiful and sad that. It's been so many years since Halle Berry won. Yeah. And this is the first time it's happened again. And one of the things that was so wild to me about this award season, this is, I think, the most awards movies we've watched simply just because we wanted to see the movies. Mm-hmm. And so many of them were, like, I think Tar is amazing. I think Banshees of Inisherin is one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. Yep. I think Fire of Love and All the Beauty and the Bloodshed and... Turning Red and Marcel the Shell. Like there were so many things nominated in so many categories that are some of my favorite things I've ever seen. And they just were all competing against each other. And that's really tough. Like yeah. I think Colin Farrell deserves an award. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Martin McDonough, is that his name? Yeah. He deserves awards. Marcel the Shell deserves awards. And so I'm so thankful for what Everything Everywhere All at Once Winning does for how we understand movement forward in terms of representation yeah both in movies and in the awards we give to movies and in genre film yeah but i would have loved all those movies even if they never were nominated for any awards no i agree like the i'm still kind of just riding the oscar high and i don't consider the oscars like the benchmark of what makes or breaks a good film i think it i think the oscars is a lot of spectacle but it i think I get really excited when something I really love does really well. Like the year that Parasite did so well was like one of the best Oscars ever because it's just great to see something that you give a shit about see get rewarded for being amazing. I want to talk a little bit about how we watched them. Did you have anything else you wanted to speak to about the awards themselves? Just Just a couple of things that I thought were really cool. I mean, first of all, like everything everywhere winning... It won the most awards above the line in the above the line categories, which are screenplay, mm-hmm. um, the acting categories, directing, and best picture. And it, they didn't have a nominee for best actor, unfortunately, so they couldn't be That's in that right. category. Yeah. Um, A24 won the most awards of the night. It won nine awards. It's wild. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, and it's its second film to win best picture after uh, Moonlight. Moonlight, yeah. Ki Hui Kwan is the second Asian man to win supporting actor. And I think that's great. Another beautiful moment. I mean, the Daniels were on stage a lot last night, 
but uh, a really sweet moment. And we watched we watched it with our buddy Ashley. Um, so this made it even more special is that Daniel Shiner thanked his Aww. teachers. It got me really emotional. Yeah. Like that is such a big, that is such a big thing. And it just, <laughs> I feel like it just speaks to the purity of the Daniels in wanting to respect where they came from and the, and the people that helped get them to where they are. And I just, I, as the person that sees the students that have said to you how much you mean to them and how much you've affected their lives and how much you've contributed to where they are now. Um, I, th- I think that that's really beautiful and I see the power that you have in these kids lives. And it just made me think of that when he said that. It's very sweet. A- Ashley and I, who, if you've listened to the show, then you know that Ashley is a, a teacher as well. Um, but I think we both got pretty, pretty welly at that point. And, there's, I think, nothing more meaningful to me than uh, than hearing from a past student that they're thinking of me or that I've had an impact on them. And an email just today from a student who graduated in 2020, just being like, just wanted to update you on where my life is and thank you again for everything you've done. And I'm like, that's just... You get a chance to thank a teacher years later. I don't think anything means more to us, so... Mm-hmm. It was very sweet. It was. I just wanted to, and I just wanted to say, like, I think that this is just a really important moment. Seeing so many, seeing just seeing everything everywhere, which is again just like one of my favorite things ever. Get recognized in this way and seeing <laughs> seeing Key Kwan's speech. I don't. I don't think I've cried this much at an Oscars no. ever. Yeah, we cried a lot. You and Ashley more than me, but we cried a lot. I, I also have to say, I don't know if you were thinking about this, but Michelle Yeoh has said this in more than one of her speeches during the awards season, but it was the thing she started with in her Academy Award, which is this is for all the little boys and girls who look like me, and we have two little nieces who look like her, mm-hmm. and like knowing that they're going to get to grow up with this movie and hopefully many more that have like amazing people and stories that are like not all one kind of story with people who look like them Mm -hmm. just made me really emotional too yeah it was just a really special moment in time and it just it just made me really really happy but why don't you tell about the conditions of which we watched it so we have to take it back to the fact that we we didn't watch them live because this was also the finale of the last of us and as much as we like the Oscars, The Last of Us came first. <laughs> yes. So while we wanted to go and watch them live at um, Metro Cinema, our favorite place in the world, we weren't bumping anything for The Last of Us. <laughs> yeah. Um, and our good buddy Ashley came over to watch The Last of Us with us and was like, I'll come to watch The Last of Us. You guys do the Oscars on your own. So we watched The Last of Us and holy hell, it's a perfect season of television. Yeah. And it did such justice to the games. And mm-hmm. I cried so much. Yeah. And I felt so many heavy feelings. And um, I'm glad that we got to have one of our favorite people over to watch it with us and we could all share that together. Mm-hmm. Anything you want to say about The Last of Us? Uh, I, I think you, you said it best. It is a perfect season of television. Um, whether or not you've played the games, it is a hell of an experience. Uh, highly recommend watching it. 
highly recommend playing the games. I know that we've read wrecked them before. Yeah, like your your brother who has never had a PlayStation. We had a we had an old PlayStation Four, and we're like, take this and go play the games. <laughs> and and then he's like, do you should I play the games first and then watch the show? Because I really want to watch the show. Should I play both games? And we're like, oh god, I don't know. <laughs> Too difficult of a choice. Cannot compute. <laughs> yeah. Um. Also, listen to the Last of Us podcast. It's really good. Some of you clearly are because on Apple Podcasts under if you like bad dad rad dad you might also like the last of us podcast is on there so <laughs> thank you for listening to that whether it's on our recommendation or because you're just a great awesome person so yeah we watched that with ashley and she was like she had <laughs> classic brought a bunch of snacks mm-hmm. we snacked out on some candy and chips and lemon oreos from the states and it just soda like, waters it just reinforced sorry sorry to interrupt but like we were hanging out with our our, our diblings the other night and uh, I basically just said, like, yeah, we're basically just like two people that watch movies and and eat junk food. We're basically just big kids. Yeah, because they got all excited when I said, we're going to go pick up ice cream tomorrow. Right. And I was just casually saying that to you. And then they were like, can we come? And we're <laughs> like, uh, like, oh, we're that's, just, a, that's every day of our lives. Yeah, we're just big babies. <laughs> you can come if your parents will let you. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, we were we were hanging out, we were watching that, and and she had said she didn't want to watch the Oscars with us, and she was like, "Can I stay to watch the Oscars?" And so the three of us watched them together, and it was like our friggin' Super Bowl. We yeah. were cheering, we were crying, <laughs> we were like white knuckling it with like, "Come on, Michelle Yeoh! Come on, Michelle Yeoh! Come on, Michelle Yeoh!" We were swooning. We were, you know, I was rewinding the TV every time Paul Mescal. Every time Michelle Yeoh was shown and there was a little bit of Paul Nescal behind her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was really fun. It was really fun to watch it together. You know, we cheered a lot when Parasite won, but there was so much more going on here and must be what sports fans feel like. Even yeah. though I think the Oscars are a bunch of hooey. Yeah, um, hooey indeed. I can't help but get caught up in the loveliness of it, even if I know it's hollow. Yeah. Oh. Not hollow what the people are saying, but the actual awards themselves yeah um oh one more one more award that was really exciting was sarah polly oh my goodness yeah and we have to talk about that she had i think my favorite speech of the night yeah made me very emotional we freaking love sarah polly women talking was great but i love her beyond that i think she's a great writer i think she's you know stories we tell is phenomenal her memoir run towards the danger is is we've rad wrecked it i'm pretty sure um and we loved women talking as well. So really lovely to see her awarded. And uh, I thought her speech was incredibly meaningful and important. A lot of really, really meaningful speeches last night. Yeah. Like it felt like what was probably in terms of the Oscars as just like a viewing experience. Last year was trash. It was like probably one of the worst ones yet. It was just a very tough watch. This felt like it was it was a little bit more locked in. There wasn't a lot of spectacle. They had the actual live performances of the songs and the the yeah, like the speeches were just tight and really great and, and from emotional. What we watched, we did we do fast forward through some things, but the speeches we watched, I don't think anybody got music cued. No. Sometimes they said thank you and then the music started playing because I think they thought they were done. Mm-hmm. And then they would kind of yell, Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um I really could have done without Jimmy Kimmel. 
And I thought some of his jokes were really tasteless, but because we're going to focus on the joy, <laughs> um, I thought the actual speeches were really, really lovely. And that's been the joy of watching the everything everywhere train all season is just, I like watching these people talk and I love seeing them as a team win together and, and lose together. Um, it's really lovely. And I think there's a little bit of bittersweetness to it because I've enjoyed watching interviews with all of them and w- watching them during award season being together. And now it's, that's kind of going to die down and they're all going to move on to their respective projects. And I have no doubt that they'll like things will crop up with them here or there, but that little family's kind of, kind of dissipate and they all got to go their separate ways. So it makes me a little bit sad. I can imagine there's some feelings like that amongst them too. I also think though that they all have a well needed and earned break from the awards busyness Mm -hmm. that I'm sure is going to have a mixture of emotions, but hopefully is something that they can welcome because I'm sure they've been pretty nonstop for a while. But I, I just want the best for all of those people. Because they've just been lovely to watch. Yeah. So that's uh, the that's, that's that. That's kind of the preamble. Uh, I know it's a lot to unpack, but it was a very it was a very special night and what getting to watch it with our buddy Ashley kind of made it even more special. And yeah. following on the heels of such a perfect finale of The Last of Us. <laughs> which I'm yeah. like immediately ready to rewatch the whole first season. Yeah. Faster than playing the game. Yeah. Oh, maybe not. It's like a little less stressful. It is. Every time we have a moment in The Last of Us that was like gameplay, I'm like, oh, I died get, so much. Getting these like anxious <laughs> feelings in my body of like, oh, man, I was killed so many times. There were not nearly as many clickers and bloaters <laughs> in the show because I was killed so many times by yeah. all of those things. But <laughs> yeah, um, looking at the show, it's like, oh, this is manageable. If you want to feel stressed out and see more infected, play the game. If you want to just have the story, core story in a beautiful way, <laughs> watch the show. Highly recommend doing both multiple times. Hell yeah. Okay, let's get into the six smackaroonies we watched this week. Is uh, it going to be that forever now? Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Now that you've called it out, I, I know it's a thing. <laughs> Rats. <laughs> uh, so on this episode 55... We, uh, we went to the theater for the first one, and it was a pretty cool theater experience that I feel, you know, not, I'm not going to say they were stealing our idea, but uh, we went to Metro Cinema, and they put on this this night that they called Kino Confidential, which was um, kind of a celebration of, it's all volunteer run and uh, and supported by the community and, and whatnot, so they wanted to celebrate that, but the kind of coolest part of it was that it was a mystery movie. Um, so we went in not knowing what we were going to see and it was going to be played on 35 millimeter. Leading up to it was really fun because they were posting on their social media little hints of potentially what the movie could be. So leading up to it, the hints were that it was directed by an award-winning director and horror was one of its subgenres. And then they posted... Uh, a series of emojis, which was like a cowboy hat, a mosquito, cigarette, cigarette, drop of blood, drop of blood, and a sunset. Yeah. 
Um, so we were racking our brain. I took this to work and the like small pod of people I was having lunch with, they were all all racking their brains. And then the night that we were going to it, they're like, what was it? What was it? <laughs> so everybody was pretty invested in it. Our buddy Lori, who we've had on the show before, got it like first first guess. Yeah. I was just like, any guesses as to what the movie is? Bam. Got it. Yeah. First go. Incredible. Um, Why don't you line it up for us? So what the movie was that Lori, our good friend from Queer Horror Cult, but also from life, <laughs> guessed us so fast, was Near Dark. This is a 1987 horror western directed by Catherine Bigelow. So all checking out. Director. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was written by Eric Red and Bigelow as well. It stars Adrian Pazdar as Caleb Colton, Jenny Wright as May, Lance Henriksen as Jesse Hooker, and Bill Paxton as Severin, and there's a bunch of other people, but that's what IMDb is for. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the synopsis is a small-town farmer's son reluctantly joins a traveling group of vampires after he is bitten by a beautiful drifter. Do you think ever, anyone's ever made the joke, Deuce Bigelow, Catherine Bigelow? <laughs> No, because as soon as you said it out loud, it was bad. <laughs> yeah. It'd have to be Catherine Bigelow. Wait. Deuce Gigolo, Catherine. B no, Cat yeah, Catherine Bigelow, male Gigolo. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> bad joke. You made Stupid. a bad joke, Petey. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, we saw this mystery movie pick, and they did it the way we do it. So, again, not like they're stealing our idea or anything. <laughs> Feels like it. That was very, very cool. Um, but just like what we do at home, like it's not like they then came up and announced it. They started running the film and you knew what it was once you knew what it was, mm -hmm. which is the best way to do mystery movie picks. Mm -hmm. um, what did you think of Near Dark? I was so grateful that, uh, I mean, first of all, when Lori guessed that, I was like, that I'd be cool with that because Near Dark is a movie that I've talked about on the show. My aunt on my mom's side when I was growing up, she was the one that kind of introduced me to a lot of eighties horror movie movies and those kinds of, those kinds of films. And this was one that I knew that she had and that I was interested in growing up, but I never got around to it. So when Lori guessed that I was like, I'd be cool with that. And we haven't seen it. Haven't covered it on the pod. Would have been really disappointed if it was something we covered on the pod because you the know, pod. this guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, actually quite liked it like it wasn't my favorite thing that i've ever seen by by any means but it was still just kind of this like 80s campy kind of romp like i i kind of saw i got a lot of vibes of like the lost boys yeah that's what when when i i had never heard of this to be honest oh like not at all well, you just said that you've talked about it on the show before, so no, I sorry, I meant like I've talked about how my aunt would show oh, me. Oh, I was 80s like, I, so I guess I just wasn't listening. Okay, that's better. Uh, no, I didn't know. I I didn't recognize the cover. I didn't know, but I mean, we know this. I'm not that. You don't really like movies. <laughs> yeah, no, I hate them. <laughs> I'm not that um well versed in the 1980s, like in any of the art of the 1980s. Right. Um. But I said, is it good when Lori guessed that? And Lori said, um, yeah, it's got some similar vibes to The Lost Boys, but she likes that one better. And I was like, okay, all right. Now, I will say, this feels like the kind, <laughs> this feels like the kind of movie that you would have really liked if you had seen it when you were little. Yeah, I, like I was thinking been a, that. This, this is like an Elliot, baby Elliot movie. Yeah, big And then time. you would have made me watch it and I would have been like, oh. 
Yeah, like I also kind of thought of like Big Trouble in Little China a little bit and how the first time I showed you that you hated it. I don't remember anything about it, but I, I know I do remember that I did not like it. And that's why we're going to rewatch it uh. sometime soon. But yeah, I, I totally, I got that vibe too. Like I felt that. I'm like, if I had seen this when I was like inappropriately like nine years old, I probably would have loved it. Loved it. Yeah. So here's the thing. The mystery movie part of what Metro was doing was very cool. Obviously, it's our favorite way to watch movies is what we do at home. And it was a little it was a little disappointing that it wasn't as busy as I'd hoped it was because like I get so excited about a mystery, but I don't know if like other people like I don't want to spend money on a movie or spend time on a movie if I don't know if I'm going to like it. Mm -hmm. Perhaps like I'd be curious how if the same movie, not a mystery would have drawn a different crowd. I don't know. But what I did realize about myself is I didn't really like getting clues. Right. Because we kind of knew after Lori guessed near dark and then we I looked up what it was about. I was like, oh, I think she's right. Um, well, that's why like something that we started to drop, but like something that happens between the two of us when we do mystery movie picks at home is that typically when you pick a mystery movie pick and the movie has started, I'm pretty silent until the title card comes up. But when it's my mystery p- movie pick and like the title card hasn't come up yet, you start peppering me with questions. You're just like, oh, is it this? Could it be? Oh, is it? Could it? Could it be? And then like cast starts covered up. You're like, oh, is it this? It's, it's got to be. Are this. you mad at me about this? No, but because you're really, really ragging on me here. No, 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 no. I just think that that's like I think that that's kind of. Yeah, because as soon as I started getting clues, I just wanted to know the answer. Yeah. And and so, saying. yeah, like when it's when it's a pure mystery, I'm just excited to find out what it's going to be mm-hmm. and like open to the experience of what it's going to be and that you know that was what we started doing the mystery movie picks a long time ago long before we ever envisioned we would sit down at microphones had a pod he's this guy today everyone (laughs) but we did it because we were sick of like what do you want to watch what do you want to watch no i don't want to watch that maybe this no not that like we were just sick of the dance of and then just scrolling through Netflix aimlessly for like 30 minutes and not picking something. Um, it doesn't quite even a little bit equate to what it was like to go to a video rental store and like go through the aisles. That was fun. Mm-hmm. Scrolling Netflix or whatever other streaming site you have is not as fun. No. So we started doing that just to eliminate that part of it. Um, but what it ended up doing was making at least me just so much more open to whatever the movie was going to be. Mm -hmm. Just like, I'm excited to see what this is. I'm excited to see what you've chosen for this particular night. I'm excited for what you want to show me or watch with me, as opposed to being like, oh, the Terminator, I don't want to watch that, Mm -hmm. right? And I think getting the clues made me more just be like, I want an answer, as opposed to like, I'm excited for what it's going to be. Now, I do think it's important if you're a theater or, you know, when we have a guest on the show to just, in, in the case of a theater, to give heads up about genre or content. So I think, you know, mentioning it was horror probably is important mm-hmm. um, because some people really wouldn't want to go see a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, when we have a guest on the show, we say, like, do you have any hard no's? Like any, like, do not pick this movie or do not pick this genre of movie or do not pick this director, anything like that. Um but I think I'm just more of a pure mystery or pure knowledge. I either want to know what the movie is or I don't want to know what the movie is. I, I don't like getting little clues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I, I'd be down next time if it was 
more direct of the genre. Like I, the pieces, the two pieces of information I could take up front would be genre and like release date or like release year. And that'd be like the extent of the knowledge I would want to Oh, because if it was like 1920s, we might not want to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, it like takes away that like I think knowing just any content stuff, like I think, I mean, you're not going to pick like Irreversible for a mystery movie, I don't a think. A Serbian film? Yeah. God, no. I don't think, I don't even think they can. Um, but, you know, if it's horror, just like saying that like there's violence in it or something, you know, just so people can make choices about that. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Anyway, enough about the mystery part of it. 35 millimeters cool. Yeah. It, yeah, we saw The Shining was the last one that we saw at Metro in 35 millimeter. There's like, there's a real charm to film, like getting the cigarette burns and like seeing where the uh, the splices are in the film. And just there's some sequences that are pieces, the pieces of the film yeah. are grittier than others. So you so, just get yeah. all this like du- dust and debris on, on the frames. It's uh, And it's not being done retroactively to make it seem that way which is (laughs) which is how we typically do see that stuff now it's pretty cool um they also metro had also paired with a local brewing company Mm -hmm. to have this um my brain just died (laughs) explain it so yeah uh they partnered with a brewery called blind man brewing from here in edmonton edmonton i think calgary one of the two and um they ran they essentially came up with a beer for metro it's called super eight and before the film played there was this sort of ode this this short film that was an ode to the independent cinemas in alberta um so it featured metro it featured the capital uh, and then a couple other ones from calgary i think um but it was cool because on the cans of the beer they had uh sort of like screen grabs from the film and they were different from can to can, so it became kind of a collector's thing. So when I went and got the beers, I, I was I was that guy. And I'm like, can I have this one and this one, please? Um, they're pretty cool. Maybe maybe uh, we'll snap a shot and put it up on uh, on the Insta this they're very, week. Very very cool because they're very neat. Well, that was yeah, that was a nice little nice little thing. Um, yeah, and the and the movie itself definitely more of an Elliot movie than a Kylie movie. Yeah, but. Due to the mystery movie of it all, I was very open to the experience of it, and I thought it was pretty fun, mm-hmm. pretty goofy in like a on purpose way, very nineteen yeah. eighties like slick, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, shocking to me that the person who made this made all those war movies that I haven't seen. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, or like I don't know if they're like war movies. Are they war movies? It's war it's adjacent, like. like- post 9-11 stuff like yeah the hurt locker and zero dark 30 which i know is a that one really sticks in people's craw a little bit but i don't have i haven't seen it i haven't seen either of them i have no no interest um i did think it could have been more sexy yeah they kind of uh sexy light they pulled back on the sexy for sure i mean when you're dealing with vampires that's kind of the name of the game yeah you can go so sexy uh, and it and it was like it, again. I feel like if you had seen this when you were really little, it would have felt pretty sexy. Mm-hmm. But I was like, could, could have been more sexy. But you know who I really like? Who do you like? I really like Bill Paxton. I really like him. I, I really like his eighties, nineties yeah, stuff. Eighty. I put this in my letterbox review. Eighties Bill Paxton is just a gem. Specifically, eighties Bill Paxton. <laughs> He's got some in this one in particular because in other things he's been like kind of the charming guy. 
Mm. And in this, he's got some um, grit. He does spice. Yep. There's an actor I can't remember his name right now. He's in Mr. Robot. He's the main guy. He was in Heather's Christian mm, Slater. Christian Slater. He kind of had like his vibe in Heather's a little bit. Oh yeah. Like just this like kind of a dick, but like huh. he's kind of cute too. But you're like, ugh. And like kind of like out of his tree a little bit. Yeah. That's <laughs> true. You just, you're real, really winning today. <laughs> um, also, uh, Adrian Pastar, he was in Heroes. Yes. Yeah, so- I freaking loved the first season of Heroes. That was one of the, my favorite times of my life. It was a, it was an event. I remember getting together every week. We had like a little group of friends and we'd watch an, an episode of Heroes first season. And at the end of every episode, we'd be like, oh, <laughs> it would just get so hyped about where it was going next. That that show had an excellent marketing campaign with like the save the cheerleader, save the world. Um, mm-hmm. And like these comic book tie ins. I feel like it was a little ahead of its time. Now that I think that about kind of it, stuff? Now I have to think about it. This week was kind of a, a heroes heavy week of people from heroes. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, but I just thought of that. Okay. We've got a couple of interesting um connections. Yeah. Through through the films that we watched. But I, I wanted I did want to say though, as soon as you leaned over me and you were like, Oh my god, that's Nathan Petrelli. I just like couldn't get out of my head. <laughs> it's like, oh my god. That's that Nathan Petrelli. He could fly. <laughs> yes. He flew out of his car. His wife got in a car accident. Sorry, these are hero spoilers. I don't know if anybody's wanting to watch the first season of Heroes. So Heroes got real done dirty by the writer's strike. And I don't know if it would have gone off the rails if it hadn't been for the writer's strike or if it just never was going to live up to how good it was in the first season. Now, I have sometimes taught the first season of Heroes in one of my grade 10 classes. And it isn't as good as we remember it being. I've stopped teaching it. I do Fresh Prince of Bel-Air now. That's much better. Yeah, I can see, I can totally see that. Because I think even... The he, Nikki stuff does not hold up, let me tell you. I get that. And isn't she like Pee Pee Poo Poo, the actress? I thought I she was. I think so, yeah, I think she is. I thought she was racist or something. Anyway, yeah, I think you and I tried to rewatch it at some point in our adult lives and that fell off. I mean, Peter Petrelli is one cute boy, but that's about as far as yeah. it goes. Yeah. Um. Something I think you probably liked in this movie is the score. Yeah. What? Oh, freaking Tangerine, Tangerine Dream. Dream. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Great name. Yeah, it was uh, it was just that juicy '80s goodness. <laughs> wow, it's so good. Cat, this is what Catherine Bigelow had to say about it. I just think there's a provocative, haunting, mercurial quality that just permeated everything that they did and gave the film a patina that really transformed it. Oh, a patina. A patina. Oh, yeah. It worked the patina real good. Tell me about the cast. Um, So I knew this, but it had totally blanked on this. So we saw this with our new buddy, Elliot. And because I was like, oh, my God, there's so much overlap between the cast in this and the cast that is in so many of James Cameron's 80s movies. Like, it, like what's going on there? Then Elliot reminded me that Catherine Bigelow and James Cameron were a couple. Yeah. So what I read online is that when Bigelow was getting ready to make this film, Cameron just was like, hey, how about you use my, quote, ready-made ensemble cast? (laughs) Yeah. 
And that is what they did, indeed. I mean, and it it was fun, like having been so familiar with James Cameron's work with these actors and just seeing them all come together here. I, I quite enjoyed that. I thought that was sweet. Honestly, it seems like it was pretty fun to make. Yeah, and like there are some sequences that I don't know if they're regarded as iconic or not, but to me they feel iconic. Like there's a bar scene that feels pretty iconic and there's some chase sequence stuff and like I think it was really it was really dope. This isn't too spoilery, but like because they're vampires, they can't be out in the day. So when they are stealing vehicles and stuff, they have to like coat the inside with like spray paint or like aluminum. Like those scenes are really tense. Well, and I really like that. Something that I liked about it and I mean, this is something that I like about horror in general. And even though I'm not as much of a, I lean more ghosts than I do like vampires, werewolves, Monsters. mermaids. Yeah. Like I, you, you lean more. Are you afraid of the dark over goosebumps? I do. Yeah. Yeah. That is a very good way to describe it. But something I did like in this, because even though I lean more ghost, paranormal, real people, that kind of stuff, or just like unexplainable what happened as opposed to like lore. I have seen a lot of stuff with vampires and often when vampires are exposed to sunlight, they just immediately like burst. Mm -hmm. But this had more of a like, they slowly start to like roast. roast. And I liked that. I thought it was, it built the tension because there's still an opportunity to get out of the sunlight. Um, yeah, I don't know. There, there was there was some fun stuff. I, ca I don't see myself revisiting this often slash ever. Yeah. Maybe when I'm old. You've been saying that a lot lately. <laughs> I might watch that when I'm old. Um, but I did, yeah, I did. I did enjoy the experience of it. Um, fun little little bit here. There's a the opening shot. Do mm -hmm. you remember it? There's a mosquito. Oh, yeah. Um, hence the appropriate emoji clues. For this shot of a mosquito sucking someone's blood... They had to grow the mosquito from scratch to make sure that it didn't like pass anything. Wow. That's a dedication. Yeah, that is a dedication. It's a pretty cool opening shot, I will say. Yeah, and like all of the emojis are kind of taken from that opening shot. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Well, kind of. Yeah. Uh, uh, how did how did Near Dark make you feel? At the end of it, I'm grateful, even more grateful for 80s Bill Paxton. <laughs> how'd it make you feel it made me feel just like a goofy sense of collective fun with like everybody i loved getting to do a mystery movie with people i didn't know yeah and like we ran into um someone we know from high school who like is mutual friends with some of our close friends um and he was with some of his friends and like they were all like oh we've been guessing forever and it was just like this sense of like we all don't know what this movie's gonna be our friend elliot did yeah. Because they're on the programming committee, so they knew. And they had actually messaged us. And we're like, if you're on the fence about the movie, it's really good. And we were like, okay, it's not Indiana Jones, right? Because some people are guessing that. We don't want to go to that. And they were like, no, it's not. Um, but for the most part, most everybody in the theater didn't know what it was. And that was just really collectively fun. Yeah. More of that. Yeah. I love it. I hope it's a program they continue because I think it's a really cool way to celebrate their peeps, but also to uh show cool films and like having them be on 35 millimeter is also a treat it's great okay i am really excited i've been excited to talk about this next movie since we started the pod <laughs> you gotta quit it with the pod <laughs> i can handle smackaroonies i can't handle the pod <laughs> <laughs> 
Why? What's wrong with the pod? It sounds so... Say it. I don't say it. I don't even know what I was going to say. It sounds so like douchey man. Douchey <laughs> white man TM. Like, will, I got a pod. Like kind of pretentious. No, Well, like, but dumb pretentious. Like, you yeah. think you're being pretentious, but everyone's like laughing in your face. <laughs> Par for the course. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> um, okay. This is one of our favorite movies. 2009, same year that we became an item. Babe. <laughs> uh, I don't know what to do with you. <laughs> uh, comedy, family-filled, fantastic Mr. Fox. It was directed by Wes Anderson, based on the book by Roald Dahl, and the screenplay was written by Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach. Uh, the voice cast is stacked. So George Clooney as Mr. Fox, Meryl Streep as Mrs. Fox, Bill Murray as Badger, Jason Schwartzman as Ash, Wallace Wallodarsky as Kylie. Hey, that's your name. That's my name. Eric Chase Anderson as Christofferson. Woo. Michael Gambon as Bean. Willem Dafoe as Rat. Owen Wilson as Coach Skip. And Jarvis Cocker as Petey, amongst many others. Um, I say stack cast. It is. A lot of white faces in there. Yeah. Heavens. Synopsis. An urbane fox cannot resist returning to his farm raiding ways and then must help his community survive the farmer's retaliation. Okay, let's get into it. What do you think of Fantastic Mr. Fox? I love Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, this is one that I often, after um, getting this tip from our good buddy Ashley, been on the show a handful of times, um, We've had some weird days teaching where like all of a sudden the internet cuts out or like the buses aren't running and nobody's there. If I have to find something to do to fill the very specific 85 minutes I have, I usually show Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't think I knew that. Uh, well, it started this year, so it's pretty new. Okay. But I've done it twice already. Nice. Um, so I've seen it a couple times recently and it really depends on the group of students, whether they lean into this or not, because it. In my mind, this is such a slam dunk, perfect movie. Mm -hmm. But I guess it's not. I guess it's a slam dunk, perfect movie for you, me, Ashley, and every other cool person on the planet. <laughs> yeah, right. But I love this movie so much. It is exactly my kind of humor. Oh, yeah. It's just, it's so, so dry and so direct. And I feel like that kind of humor exists across all of Wes Anderson's work, but I feel like it's kind of cranked up a notch in this movie. And there's something about pairing it with the dot motion and the ridiculousness of like the plot of these foxes who are, mm -hmm. you know, going through it with these farmers. And it's also, it's very clever. Like it's very, very, very clever. Like it's one of those movies that if this had been a thing when we were kids and we had loved it when we were kids, as we were older, we would have been like, oh, I never got that. Yeah. Which I love. Like there's, we showed this a lot to our oldest niece when she was little. Because mm -hmm. we're like, let's make her like cool movies. <laughs> and I think she liked it. Yeah. Like it's pretty whimsical to look at. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I love it. I love the, instead of like claymation stop motion, the like fabric based. Mm-hmm. Like the Rudolph style? Yeah. It's it's all it's a form of animation that I feel lends itself 
really well to Wes Anderson's filmmaking style. Mm -hmm. Like the way that he works with symmetry and center aligning everything and everything kind of has its place. It just, it works so well. And I like that it is kind of, it likes to kind of break the fourth wall on the medium a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, like the bit where he's like, you're practically glowing and she looks like a plastic statue with lights inside of it kind of thing. Like it's, it's playing with the fact that these are tangible things. Well, I also, so I, until I was reading the trivia for this movie, I've seen this movie so many times. Yeah. I never picked up on this. I'm curious if you did, that there's times when the characters can read the title cards. They like react to the title cards. Oh, I've never noticed. Yeah, I've never noticed either. It's like, give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of just hoping that you knew so that you could like talk about it, but turns out you didn't know. No. Um, I don't know. It's something about like the, okay, so it says uh, the character, this is from IMDb Trivia, the characters seem to break the fourth wall by being able to read title cards for each scene. Ash seems to know what Mr. Fox and Kylie are up to from reading the title card in a scene. Nathan Bunt seems to be reading the time card that says how long Mr. Fox and his friends and family have gone without food or water, prompting him to ask how long they can go without food or water. Hmm. I'm like, that's... Yeah. I'm like, it's just, it's just clever. Yeah. Um, I just, yeah. The whole movie's clever. Um, it, the This movie, though, has played a big role in a very relatable way in our relationship. And we reference it quite a bit in regards to me and something I do to you. Oh, yes. <laughs> so why, why don't you explain it? Because I know it drives you nuts. And <laughs> so the opening scene of this movie, Mr. Fox and Mrs. Fox, he's, he's standing by a tree and she comes up to him and she says, or I don't know, they start talking and then he, they, they need to get back to wherever they're going. And he says, do you want to take the scenic route or do you want to take the shortcut and she goes let's take the scenic route and he goes oh but the the shortcut is, is i don't know so much more beautiful whatever he like i don't know i'm doing a bad job of this <laughs> essentially he offers her two choices she picks one and then he says the other one which he wants to take and then she just kind of acquiesces and is like okay then we'll take that way and he's like great that way's kind of better anyway and you do this to me all the time where you'll be like do you want to do this or this and then i'll make a choice and you'll be like Mm, how about the other one? And what I, I'll say, you're fantastic, Mr. Foxing me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, don't give me choices if you already have something you want to do. I'm even like, I'm even aware that this is a thing that I do and I still slip up and do it sometimes where I'll give you two choices and I'll be like, but what if we did this instead? <laughs> yeah. What if we did the one you didn't pick? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I try not to do it, but I get called on fantastic Mr. Foxing you. Every once in a while. On top of that, the character of Ash basically is me. I see it more and more every time we watch it. <laughs> Tell me how. I feel like just as we get older, I feel like we like all like not just you, but just everybody gets a little saltier. So I feel the I feel the Ash spice even more on subsequent watches because we're just both getting older. <laughs> And I appreciate that so much. How am I like Ash? <laughs> He's just different. <laughs> he wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. He says, I'm grumpy. I spit. I wake up on the wrong side of the bed. I'm just different. <laughs> yeah. 
he's an athlete. But he's also really little. Like, I quote a line where he talks about, like, do you know why I can do that? Because I'm little. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I love him so much. And I have a lot of, he also has, like, a very complicated relationship with his dad. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Ash is, like, mm-hmm. one of those this is me characters. And I'm, I just feel such compassion for him, which is like feeling that for Mm -hmm. myself. Uh, Well, and like Jason Schwartzman does such a good job. Like all the voice acting in this is really, really, really good. Yeah. Agreed. Like everybody, everybody brings their a game. I wanted to ask, like, is there anything that's, that stood out on this viewing or that you discovered while you were watching it? Like not anything that you looked up, but just like while you were watching it stood out for you on this viewing. I think this time, more than in previous viewings, I really didn't like Fox. Yeah. Like, I was like, he's an asshole. Like, he is a selfish asshole. Yeah. Does what he wants. He does what he wants when he, when wants, he yeah. wants. Damn the consequences to everybody else. And I mean, I think that that character, that type of character is very common to Wes Anderson film, to like some other like indie white guy TM films. And we so often find it charming. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I've been guilty of finding Fox funny and charming. And I think the more I watch it, the more I'm like, no, man, your wife told you if you guys were going to do this life together, then you had to do this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and she has this line where she says, if, if what I think is happening is happening, it better not be. <laughs> um, and it's just, you know, instead of communicating with her about the way that he's feeling, because I think the way he's feeling is quite valid and relatable it's very midlife crisis yeah and and i mean you know i'm only in my early 30s and i i still find that relatable this question of what am i doing with my life is this who i'm meant to be um but the way he goes about it is entirely dill holish yeah i agree i saw that this time but on the flip side i actually had more appreciation on this viewing for Mrs. Fox. Yeah, agreed. Like, I think that the amount of patience that she has is probably more than she should, but she speaks up for herself mm-hmm. and puts her foot down mm-hmm. of you and does what she can with the knowledge that she has of mm-hmm. what is going on. Um, and I, I love, I love the subtlety of which Meryl Streep plays it. Oh, her, I think her voice acting in this is some of the best in the film and I think it's it is so subtle that perhaps it's not as noticed it's very good like I feel it's so funny this movie is able to just wrap me up in it so much just through the way that it's executed that I don't even think about the voice actors when no, I hear the voices I don't like George Clooney's voice that it, it's not George Clooney it's Mr. Fox oh agreed and like I know all of those people and yet I actually feel kind of um, like discombobulated if I try and picture Meryl Streep. Yeah. I'm like, no, that's just Mrs. Fox. Yeah. That's just Ash. And like Jason Schwartzman's actually probably the person I know the most mm-hmm. from other stuff. Like I haven't watched a lot of George Clooney or Meryl Streep stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's just Ash. Yeah. Yeah. No, Which totally. is a testament to the strength of the character building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I And I think... I was like thinking about this a little bit more like more recent Wes Anderson movies have felt a little wishy-washy for us. And honestly, I haven't seen that many of his films. Like I've never seen Bottle Rocket. I've never seen Life Aquatic. Like I'm not a big Wes Anderson stan. Yeah. And like 
the post Fantastic Mr. Fox films, like there's just some ethical stuff and just some storytelling choices that, like I said, at least for me, it made me feel pretty wishy-washy. That said, that's what makes me grateful that this has stood the test of time as well as it has. I love it so much. It's um, so good. Like we, <laughs> Wes Anderson movies are on Criterion Collection. And I remember thinking, I'm like, they're not going to put Fantastic Mr. Fox on Criterion. Like that just seems like kind of weird that they do that. They did, and we bought it right away. It's and like we have it on DVD, <laughs> yeah, not Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah. Damn. A uh, couple of things I want to mention because I think they're pretty cool that I didn't know. I know I'm. I know I'm trivia TM, but it's okay. Um, Love it. Bring it. So this I find really sweet. I've actually never read uh, the Fantastic Mr. Fox book. I haven't. As somebody who is a big book over the movie person, and I've shifted that as I've gotten older into there's a place for telling the same story in new ways in different mediums. But I do typically like to read the book first. Um, but Roald Dahl, no. I love Matilda. Haven't read Matilda. Mm-hmm. So on and so forth. Um, Wes Anderson, Fantastic Mr. Fox was the first book he ever owned. Oh, really? His mom bought it for him at a book fair when he was seven. Uh, and he had the same copy on his bookshelf his whole life. Wow. So, like, this was just a really meaningful book to him. And the book cover that you see at the start of the film is, is the version that he had. Oh, yeah, I think so it's a cool. recreation of it, but it's the it's the version that he had. Something else that I thought was really interesting in this is that the um, voice recording were done outside of studios. I think I remember hearing this. So, yeah. like, in forests and attics and stables, underground, um, and it, like, was to create a like natural environment and a spontaneity. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think was so cool when I heard this, I was like, I've seen this movie so many times that I knew exactly the scene that was being talked about. Um, because they were doing these outdoor and like on location sound recordings, they're picking up things that you wouldn't pick up in a studio, right? Um, and so in one recording session, a nearby boat was picked up that wasn't planned. But he really liked that take, and so he changed the scene to have an airplane fly th- airplane fly through the shot. <laughs> nice. And I knew exactly what scene that was. That's great. <laughs> um, and then he said, "I think it was better with the airplane than without it. A flaw in the recording gave us a new idea." Mm-hmm. That's I cool. love that. Yeah, I I I just feel like, regardless of anything else, Wes Anderson is a lover of the craft of filmmaking and being creative and finding creative inspiration wherever it presents itself. I love that. And it's so great. A quick question for you before we wrap on Fantastic Mr. Fox. I found this piece of trivia, and I really want your opinion on it. Yeah. This is from IMDb Trivia. Is this another... Is it interesting? Is it not? No. I, well, I mean, could be. Okay, let's see. The titles and text used in the production design are in Helvetica Bold. All previous Wes Anderson movies ut- Futura. utilize Futura Bold. Yeah. I wanted to know your thoughts on that because you love type. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> this, this is uh, this is my designer nerd flag flying. That's why I want to ask. Two, two typefaces I really love. And I particularly love the presence of both of them in each of the films. I feel like Helvetica <laughs> lends itself better to this film because it is more of a family film. So it's a little bit a little bit more accessible. And uh, yeah, I, I think that I think that it totally works. 
but I, I really appreciate when he has an aesthetic. I mean, like the, even the the typeface that he got um, Jessica Heesh to make for Moonrise Kingdom is gorgeous. It's like a scripty font. Like he he brands his movies, and I, I love that. I think what I was interested in hearing from you because, as you as you well know, um, I'm not as visual as you are. Elliot showed me a video this week of a ceiling bursting with water and I like didn't understand what was happening because my eye didn't find the right part of the screen to look at. <laughs> yeah. And it's you, like a ceiling that's swelling and getting bigger and bigger until poopy water comes out of it. But I was just looking at a different part of the screen. Um, and you talked a little bit about this. Like what's the difference between Futura and Helvetica to you in terms of what it like evokes to a viewer? Like why make that change? I think that, I mean, Helvetica is, I mean, it's the default font on Apple computers. Mm -hmm. So it is something that's, like I said, it's more readable. Mm -hmm. It's accessible. It's, Familiar. it's a little bit, it's a little bit more utilitarian and like heavier lifting than Futura, which is a little bit more kind of like aesthetic driven. Like it's a little bit more designy. And has a little bit more of a uh, like a look to it and a vibe to it. Okay. Um, not that Helvetica can't, but um, yeah, like I feel like I, I yeah I think that Helvetica is just like I said more accessible for the broader audience that Fantastic Mr. Fox would draw than a Royal Tannenbaum's. So what I'm hearing from you is you do find that piece of trivia interesting. Yeah, I freaking love font stuff. I love that you already knew, too, that you were just like, yeah, I know. He used Futura, and now he uses Helvetica in this movie. <laughs> I knew. I knew. Yeah. I freaking, you love typography. Yeah, I love typography. I'm a freaking nerd. This movie's really special. It uh, it truly, truly is. Seen it so many times. We saw it in the theater together early in our relationship. Makes me emotional. Like, there's parts of this movie that... It's like human shit in it. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, a climactic scene near the end where Fox kind of confronts something that he's been afraid of and the music in it. Mm -hmm. I just like, I get so emotional. Um, oh, the music. It's uh, phenomenal. Alexandra Desplat might be pronouncing that wrong, but oh my God, it's so, it's so good. And then the soundtrack on top yeah, of that both too. The score and the soundtrack are phenomenal. Yeah, so good. Um, so it makes me emotional. It makes me excited. I also, I've seen it so many times and I laugh so much every time. I will never stop thinking, divide that by nine, please, <laughs> is like so funny. And I think it's all the more important that I don't love every Wes Anderson film. Mm -hmm. Like I, I just don't. I'm Royal Tenenbaums is, yeah, I get why people love it. I've seen Grand Budapest once. Like I'm just not this huge Wes Anderson fan. Yeah. I, I respect the work that he does. Like you said, I think he is so dedicated to what he does and I admire that, but I don't immediately go out and watch everything that he's done. I haven't seen everything he's done in his back catalog and I think he has a very unfortunate and should be examined tendency towards appropriation yeah. in his in his work and, and I think that is continued, like even in, um, what's the newest one? 
French Dispatch. Like I think it's it's not like this is just in his past work. I think it's there in Isle of Dogs. I think mm-hmm. it's there in French Dispatch. Um, despite all that, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Yep. And it means a lot to me. Yeah. I th- I think that it's really special that we both, yeah, like we were able to discover this together. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't, because it came out in 2009, it's probably one of the first movies that we did discover together that we love so much. It's kind of a foundation for our relationship. Like we quote it a lot. We reference it a lot when like <laughs> when it's like, you're fantastic Mr. Foxing me right now or, yeah. you know. Feeling a little bit like Ash today. <laughs> yeah. Also, you know, there's a character named Kylie. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they use your last name throughout the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. What, the cuss? Yeah. You cussing at me? <laughs> Don't cuss at me, little cuss. But it's really, it's really special. It truly, truly is. How does it make you feel? It makes me feel a chaotic sense of comfort. <laughs> nice. Because it is, it's, it's chaotic. It tr- yeah, it truly is. How does it make you feel? Uh, it makes me feel just so filled with joy whenever we whenever we revisit it. So from cozy, familiar, comforting joy to something new. Yeah, it was International Women's Day, which like I loosely pay attention to. <laughs> um, very important conversations about how International Women's Day can get very turfy. Um, trans women are women. Full stop. Full stop. Um, I came home and I was like, I was looking through my watch list. I kind of narrowed it down to three films made by women um, that I was interested in watching that night. I was so excited. I picked one, sit down to dinner and you're like, let's watch Scream 5 tonight in anticipation of Scream 6. And I was like, it is International Women's Day. We are not watching a movie made by two two men. Two men. Uh, written by two men, <laughs> directed by two men. So we ended up watching both. Um, I picked The Lost Daughter. It's a 2021 drama. It was directed and written by Maggie Gyllenhaal, and it is based on a book by Elena Ferrant, or Ferrante, perhaps. Oh, Ferrante. It's Italian. Um, it stars Olivia Coleman as Leda. Leda? I've already forgotten. Leda. Leda. Like, see you later. See you later. Okay, Olivia Coleman is Leda. Jesse Buckley as Young Leda, Dakota Johnson as Nina. The whole reason I picked the movie. <laughs> Paul Neskel as Will. Um, Ed Harris as Lyle and Peter Sarsgaard as Professor Hardy. You got to start introducing him as Oscar nominated actor. Oscar nominated actor and my future boyfriend, Paul Neskel. <laughs> uh, synopsis for this one. Oscar nominated actor and give me a kissy, please. Paul Neskel. <laughs> Paul Neskel. Synopsis says a woman's beach vacation takes a dark turn when she begins to confront the troubles of her past. So quite honestly, I picked this movie because it was A, directed by a woman, but B, had Paul Mescal in it. And I was like, it's International Women's Day. I'm a woman. I want to watch a movie with somebody I'd like to kiss in it. You do you. Yeah. You <laughs> you knew he was in it, right? Yeah, I did. I didn't know if you knew he was in it, so I was like waiting till he showed up on screen to be like, ah. Yeah, I'm like, I know, I know. <laughs> God. You indulge my Paul Mescal. I, I love him just as much. Yeah, you watch, you you favorite or watch later videos on YouTube to show me with Paul Mescal in them. I do that with all of your boyfriends at the time. The time? Yeah, if you go through, you can go through <laughs> my watch later list and it's just like a clump of Andrew Garfield videos and a clump of Paul Mescal videos. 
And then who else? A clump of Rami Malik. Rami Malik videos. <laughs> this is how you make the relationship last. <laughs> <laughs> it's very sweet. Very sweet. Um, he's very cute. What do you think of the lost daughter? <laughs> I was so stoked that you picked this because this was another one that I was kind of circling around wanting to watch. But it is it it was a longer one, so I was picking it in like midweek was kind of on the fence about it. And um, that it is hard because we so often are going to the theater on Friday or Saturday nights, and then it's like, do we want to watch anything that's over ninety minutes on a weeknight? But by God, we did it, and then we watched Scream Five after. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck. We were just let's let's give her tonight. <laughs> we're staying up late watching two two hour <laughs> movies. Um, but yeah, I mean, okay. Right out of the gate, I am all for trying to make Olivia Coleman the most watched actor. We, I'm feeling that Star Wars burn from when we watched all three of the Star Wars movies. On, on the, January 1st? On January 1st. And that's just now kind of shot us in the foot, so to speak, going into the rest of the year because we've seen three movies with all of the actors that were in Star Wars. And now I don't want Mark Hamill to be my most watched It's probably going to be Harrison Ford. You're probably right. Because we're, I think we're more likely to watch other movies that Harrison Ford has been in. Yeah, you're probably right. But I'm all for the <laughs> the quest of making maybe Olivia Coleman our most watched because she's incredible. Um, I mean, last week, a couple weeks ago, we watched The Father. And now we're watching The Lost Daughter. <laughs> Whoa! Um, I really love watching her on screen. And I <laughs> there's a part of me that felt really seen by her, her uh, character and the things that she's thinking in this movie. Really? Well, here, I mean, here's the thing is I feel like she and the script encapsulate my feelings whenever fuckers try to ruin my nice time. <laughs> so it has some very real world examples of when you're just chilling on the beach and then some fuckers show up or when you're in a movie theater and some loud fuckers show up. <laughs> And you just want to die. <laughs> You're like, can we? Can I not just have nice things? And she, the the reaction she has, even just with her face, most yeah. of the time, is like perfect. It perfectly encapsulates how I feel on the inside, and probably well, what my and probably what my face does as well. <laughs> probably. Yeah, she's really great. Do you know that my mom really doesn't like her? What's the deal? Why? She, so she was in The oh, Crown. Was was the favorite? No, it's about The Crown. Oh. So she, I think she plays Queen Elizabeth in The Crown. Okay. But like there's various, I've never seen The Crown. I don't plan to. I'm sure it's great. Not my thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's like, it's various different actors who play Queen Elizabeth as she ages. And I think my mom really liked Claire Foy, I believe, was or is she Princess Diana? She liked whoever was like the younger Princess Diana. And then I think the switch, it's kind of like, you know, when they changed out Aunt Viv and Fresh Prince and it's like, I don't, I don't like her as much because I liked the other one. So she's got this right. like stink on about her. And then she saw the favorite, which she thought was going to be like the crown. Yeah. So now Olivia Coleman has been in two period piece type things where my mom's felt duped by her. <laughs> So she just like and that's Olivia Colvin's fault. She just doesn't like her. <laughs> like when she won the Oscar, I think for the favorite, she was just like, "Oh, Olivia Colman. Um, So that's kind of funny. <laughs> I just it, it makes me laugh because it is such a 
it's clearly not Olivia Coleman's fault. And I think she's a phenomenal actress. Yeah, I I really love I love when she shows up in places. What oh what was the show? Oh, um Heartstopper? She was the mom. Oh, I think she is the mom, yeah. And I was like, holy shit, Olivia Coleman's here. <laughs> yes. And she's in Fleabag. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she, she and she at least what I've seen makes really good and interesting choices about the projects she wants to work on. Obviously, so, she has an Academy Award. <laughs> two, I think. That's true. Is that true? I think so. I think she has one for the favorite, and then I think she has one three. One three Oscars? Nope. Nope. Uh, she won for the favorite. She was nominated for the father, and she was nominated for the lost daughter, but she only won for the favorite. She was nominated for the lost daughter? Yeah, best actress. Oh, that's awesome. I think The Lost Daughter was nominated for a few things. Um, it was nominated for Where Are You Oscars? Why <laughs> can't I find you? What the heck? Why have you gone away? Okay, it was nominated for Best Actress for Coleman, Best Supporting Actress for Jesse Buckley, and Best Adapted Screenplay for Maggie Gyllenhaal. Uh, all, all deserving. Yeah, let's actually talk about the movie. Yeah. This was, we've talked in the past about Jesse Buckley. Yeah. Um, and how it was almost unfortunate that the, the Jesse Buckley, the movie starring Jesse Buckley that we saw leading up to women talking were all made by men and didn't really do. The, the movie overall didn't do service to how good Jesse Buckley is. Yeah, everything I've seen her in, she blew me away. And then I'd be like, well, I'm disappointed because I didn't like the movie. Yeah. So we're, and we, I think we've said on the show, like, we really want the ultimate Jesse Buckley story. And now we've gotten to watch two in the past year, the first one being Women Talking. And now this, she's incredible in this movie. She's phenomenal. I, you know, I didn't honestly didn't really know anything about this other than Olivia Coleman was in it, Paul Mescal was in it, Maggie Gyllenhaal made it. It's very slow. Yeah. It's very um, simmering. Like there's this like tension simmering in it. Mm. It's got very interesting camera work. Mm -hmm. And I could totally see why it wouldn't be everybody's thing. But I love slow stuff yeah. and I love simmering stuff. And this movie, I think at its core, is about something that is so rarely talked about, let alone depicted in art or film in specifically, which is when a person has kids and then isn't sure they wanted to do that. Yeah. But loves their kids, but doesn't love being a mother. You know, so often motherhood is depicted as either like you have it, it changes your life, you're devoted, it's the best thing you've ever done, mm -hmm. or just like total piece of shit moms who you know it's like it's like this these extremities or i knew i didn't want to have kids and i didn't do it right but yeah. i think there is probably much 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 more common i don't have kids and i'm not going to have kids so i am on that one extreme end of the spectrum where i'm like i don't want to do that mm -hmm. but i'd be lying if i said i never as as confident and as steadfast and as long as i've known that i didn't want to have kids it's not like you never think about it yeah, like you and me, and I feel like we've talked about this on the show too, like we've talked about like, but what if we had like a really precocious, really cool Matilda-esque What if we just girl? stole one of our nieces? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're all pretty great. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
just kidding. We are not going to steal one of our nieces. <laughs> but I really appreciated that this film is willing to look at how messy that is. Yeah. She's in the in-between of that. Like there's times where she just being a parent is not what she signed up for, you know? Um, and there's a line, I don't think it's a spoiler to say she says kids are a crushing responsibility. And I feel like that and all of the complicated messiness of that is so rarely explored, particularly in mothers. And mm-hmm. I feel like there's lots of people who would watch this movie and they're just wouldn't want to confront that truth. Yeah. Maybe in their own lives or what they've experienced with their own mothers. And so they're going to hate the movie because of it because she's a bad mom. Yeah. Well, and it's it's like you said too, we're so used to the story being so often is that even in stories where the mom doesn't want to have kids while leading up to when she gets pregnant and while she's pregnant, it's after she has the kid that she's like, "Oh no, I'm made for this." Like it's all it's all sunshine lollipops now. Or the opposite where immediately it's like, I wasn't made for this and I'm not going to do it. Yeah. But it doesn't often look at that in between of, actually, I do love them. Yeah. And I don't regret that I did it. But sometimes I do. Sometimes mm-hmm. I really don't want to do this. Um, and that I think is so much more true of humans in general. Like that it's not all one or the other. And I thought that this movie explored that so well. I also thought, that this accomplished way more for me what Speak No Evil was trying to accomplish. Yeah. This level of realistic frustration. Yes. Of like how strangers interact with other strangers and the like role of social politeness. Yeah. And I believed it in this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good comparison. And I, like, I, felt, I felt so frustrated in this movie a lot of the times. And we were like shaking our heads being like, why are you doing this? <laughs> like, What's going on? It was gross at times. Yeah. It was really sad at times. Mm-hmm. It was really artistic and interesting to just watch like visually. Yeah. Thought the score was really great. Apparently Jake Gyllenhaal was a big help with that because he doesn't have good eyesight. So he has good hearing. That's what IMDb trivia tells me. The fuck? <laughs> <laughs> so he really could pay attention. I to mean, that. it checks out. He's Mr. Music. <laughs> Mr. Music. indeed. <laughs> You're ignorant. Um, yeah, I really liked it. Yeah. It, the whole movie, like I've kind of used this um, metaphor before, but like it feels like when you're tightening a string on a guitar yeah, and it's just getting more taut, more taut. And you're like, when's this going to snap? But it felt like even a, like an even slowed down, more slowed down version of that. Um, but I will say that while the tension is building, I felt it really ratchet up whenever Dakota Johnson was on screen. She did a great job. Cause when, Whenever she was interacting with Olivia Coleman's character, it just felt there was something behind her eyes that felt so accusatory and judgmental mm-hmm. and like she was trying to suss something out mm-hmm. and you just you don't trust her, even though some of the things that she's saying seem pretty innocuous and that's it. It's all good in the hood. Yeah, it, I really, I really like Dakota Johnson. I think you're thinking of watching the Fifty Shades movies. Zero percent. Do you want to know what movie she dropped out of in order to be in this movie? Another Fifty Shades sequel. Don't worry, darling. Good choice. <laughs> it's so interesting to me because I do think it's a good choice. I think this is a much. This is a phenomenal. I, I thought this movie was phenomenal. I think Don't Worry, Darling is an absolute piece of garbage. 
but she probably would have gotten more traction from Don't Worry Darling. But would it have been good traction? No. No. I mean, there's no such thing as bad press. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, I also liked Sweetie Cutie Paul Mescal in this. Not enough of him. Yeah. But where he's there, it's pretty good. Yeah. Didn't get any normal people scenes. That's always a little disappointing, but that's yeah. okay. This was, yeah, this was a really powerful and compelling watch. I loved it. I'll revisit it in the future. Yeah. I agree. I really want to watch it again. Um, I do have something really interesting that I need to share with you um, that I think actually speaks really interestingly to the International Women's Day of it all. So the this is based on a book yep. by this Elena Ferrante. That is not the author's real name and nobody knows who the author really is. Hmm. Is it like ghostwritten? No. It's like a person who doesn't, like this is a person who's written a bunch of books and they're Italian. So like they're quite popular in Europe. Um, and I think quite a few of them have been translated and they don't want their identity revealed. Kind of like a Banksy for books. Oh man, the Banksy of The Banksy books. of books. So some of the things that Ferrante or whoever is Ferrante have said is that whole, uh, uh, Ferrante maintains that quote books once they are written have no need of their authors uh, once I knew that the completed book would make its way into the world without me once I knew that nothing of the concrete physical me would ever appear beside the volume as if the book were a little dog and I were its master it made me see something new about writing I felt as though I had released the words from myself mm, beautiful so that's really interesting but what's really awful is that there have been like investigative journalists publishing things trying to figure out who this person is despite the fact that they don't want anyone to know. Who gives like who gives a fuck? Like And there've been some like extreme extreme boundary violations in like publishing addresses and like writing these That's really piece. Bad. It's really awful and there's been a lot of writing about to what degree if you make the comparison to Banksy, to what degree are these violations more intense? Because the author is presumably a woman. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like what she got to hide when we don't really do that. And there is some of this like trying to prove if what if she's not a woman and then she's like writing all these books, right? Um, that are that are very focused on uh, these maternal experiences and things like that. Um, but it's like I just found thinking about this from an International Women's Day perspective there's actually a lot going on there in terms of misogyny and double standards and, mm -hmm. you know, the right to anonymity. I think there's a lot of ma male artists who have done that. And the mystery is like a point of intrigue and people like respect that. And then here it's seen as like, what are you hiding? Or yeah. it's manipulative. And I actually found that to be really disturbing. Yeah. Big time. Um, so even within the having this film made, um, the way that Maggie Gyllenhaal got the rights is the author wrote a open letter and published it saying, I'm giving Maggie Gyllenhaal the rights because nobody knows, well, not nobody, but there's not a way to find out who this is and contact the person. So it had to all happen in the like public forum. Mm. And the author did publish in that that they would only allow this movie to be made by a woman. And the author has maintained that they are a woman. Incredible pick, Kylie. It I know. All, it's all around. <laughs> I didn't know any of that it's until great. after we watched it, but... um, That is both really sad and awful, but also 
beautiful how this was able to come to light as a film. And I, re- I really liked it. I want to watch it again. Yeah, I agree. How did it make you feel? Tense, compelled, and seen in some aspects. How about you? It made me feel grateful for complex depictions of motherhood. I think mm-hmm. as much as I do really want more depictions of women who choose not to have kids and that and live a full life, mm-hmm. I think we're getting there. I think we have way fewer depictions of the complicated I did or didn't have kids and it's not an easy yes or no. And I think we need more messy, more complicated depictions of everything. Mm-hmm. But I think motherhood the sacred pedestal we put it on, I think puts way too much pressure on mothers. Mm-hmm. And as someone who doesn't plan to be a mother, um, well, I am to my little kitty. <laughs> um, very different. I I think we need more of it. And we won't shift the dial on like, oh, well, I don't like that because she's a bad mom until we have more and more and more and more nuanced depictions of everything. Yeah. So I'm very grateful for it, I'm, and I'm grateful for all the women involved in making it, and I'm grateful for cutie boy Paul Mescal and getting to look at his face. Yeah. Homeboy makes some really great choices. I hope he continues to. Yeah, I, I agree. I hope he doesn't d- pull a Rami Malek. I will be so disappointed. Yeah, I don't know. He seems better than that. I agree. And like, he's going to get nominated for more shit because he's amazing. That's why he's my boyfriend and Rami Malek isn't anymore. Yeah. Okay. We went back out to the theater for this next one, and it's one that we were pretty excited for. It's the 2023, another 2023 movie. Haven't seen a lot of those yet. Uh, horror mystery thriller, Scream 6. No spoilers. No, yeah. Yeah, like, so you can, I'm saying to the listener, no spoilers. No spoilers. You can listen. Yeah. Um, it was directed by Matt Bettinelli, Olpin, and Tyler Gillette, um, based on the characters by Kevin Williamson, and written by James Vanderbilt and Guy Busick. It stars Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers, Melissa Barrera as Sam, Jenna Ortega as Tara, Jasmine Savoy Brown as Mindy, uh, Mason Gooding as Chad, and uh, Dermot Mulrooney as Detective Bailey. And Roger Jackson as The, the Voice. Voice. Um, synopsis in the next installment the survivors of the ghost face killings leave Woodsboro behind and start a fresh chapter in New York City yeah like Kylie said earlier full disclosure we rewatched Scream 2022 aka Scream 5 in preparation for this because we'd only seen it once and because we kind of have a new core group of people that we're following I felt like I needed a refresher a little bit of what was going on but we didn't really feel like we wanted to cover Scream 5 and Scream 6 on the show. So just acknowledging we watched it. It's very weird. We've covered Scream and Scream 6. <laughs> <laughs> True, truth. Um, but uh, yeah, so we, we got prepped for it. Went and saw this in the theater. What do you think of Scream 6? I love the Scream franchise. It's uh, one of my favorites. It's the only franchise that has four or more movies horror Mm -hmm. that i've seen everyone and the fact that the sixth installment is this good still good yeah is wild um i got close with saw and then i gave up and 
uh, we kind of have done Final Destination, but I haven't followed it. Um, we've watched all of them except for one, but we watched them all in one go. Where Scream, I've been watching my whole life. Mm-hmm. So like I feel this, the way I feel about Scream is the way like some folks in like the 80s felt about like Friday the 13th or Halloween or Nightmare on, Nightmare on Elm Street. That's what this is for me. Mm-hmm. I, I love them. I love them. They're just like, they're just so good. There's such a wonderful balance of comedy, commentary, and horror. Mm-hmm. What do you think of the Scream movies? Yeah, I will watch Scream movies until I die. Even if they start going off the rails. We're committed. Uh, yeah, I'm all, I'm all in on them. Um, how do you feel about our new core group of characters? I actually like them quite a lot. Yeah. They, I, I think that they're all charming. They encapsulate kind of the spirit of the times. But I also think it's pretty dope that all of our core characters are non-white people. I agree. And I, I think they're all strong actors as well like i think jenna ortega is having a moment deservedly um i personally love jasmine Savoy brown i think she's amazing she was in the leftovers she's in yellow jackets um she's in our rad wreck of this week yeah which we'll get to foreshadowing she's phenomenal and and her as the randy mm-hmm. of it i i love so much um i love that She's a queer character played by a queer actor. I think that's so important. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I just, I, I am. I'm digging the new cast. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I am a fan of legacy stuff as uh, the character of Mindy so well lays out in Scream 5 um, that you can't just make a sequel. You have to make a requel and you have to have the legacy characters mixed with the new characters. I'm into it. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> there's just like the formula to a Scream movie, while some elements change, like there's always just the breakdown of horror movies that's very meta and is talking about itself. Man, um, they came hard for Letterboxd users in this movie. Yeah, it was, it was great. <laughs> but like that's the thing is that it's celebrating people that love horror movies and that love movies in general. Well, poking at them a little bit. Exactly. Um I think I think it's it's super fun. Jenna Ortega, I really like Jenna Ortega, and I think that she's babely. But in saying that, I feel I'm starting to feel kind of icky in saying that because she is quite young, and I'm yeah. I'm getting older, and I'm starting to feel like gross guy saying that. Yeah. But like that aside, I think that she's awesome. Yeah. Um, and I yeah, like you said, she's having a moment, and she's getting. Apparently she's gonna be in the new Beetlejuice movie. That's I'm all out. for that. And makes sense. It's awesome. They're just like take Christina Ricci, take Winona Ryder, Jenna Ortega's our new. She's that for this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> there's something I'll say about this movie, and it's it's totally my own fault because there's I built this up in my head probably too much while we were watching the film. So based on some lines that are said throughout the film. I built up in my head who I thought the killer was. And like, that's the fun of scream movies. Yeah. That's why you go. Cause it's like, Oh, who's going to be the killer this time. Mm-hmm. And what's the twist going to be. And that that's why I'll watch these until I die. But I built up in my head who I thought the killer was based on some lines throughout the movie. And it, it didn't, it didn't pan out that way. And I was a little bit disappointed and I feel like that kind of tamped down the effectiveness of who was the killer in this movie. 
but I, I recognize that that's my own fault. <laughs> I just want to share my experience is, through the movie. That's part of, you know, especially when you're getting into like Scream 6, part of it is predicting who the killer is. And so to a degree, they need to be thinking about that as they make it. Like, how are they, you know, the films are done in such a way to try and to have red herrings, to have clues, to not totally give away who the killer is, but to not have it be completely unrealistic and like a a one over on the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think some of those things that made you think the killer was who it was were put there on purpose. So I bet you're not the only person who felt that way. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, what I will say is there's some genuinely horrifying sequences in this that are done yes. with style and they're just like really effective. Yeah. The, the, um, this new, what we'll call like the requel series, like Scream 2022 and now Scream 6. As much as they're sticking within the well-established Scream formula, they're ramping up the gore, they're ramping up the violence and how brutal Ghostface can be. I mean, in one of the trailers, you, you can see like Ghostface has a freaking shotgun. Yeah. And like that's just ratcheting up the stakes in these films. Yeah, and it's there it's leaning more serious at times and really looking at that this violence isn't necessarily fun. That being said, mm-hmm. I had a lot of fun, but I actually I gasped a lot. Mhm. Mhm. The subway scene, I won't say anything more about it, but it is in the trailer, maybe one of my favorite sequences in anything ever yeah any horror movie ever i thought it was so tense and stylish and scary yeah like this there was something about the ghost face killer in in this in this film in particular that felt very imposing and very threatening in a way i haven't necessarily felt in past scream movies some of the conversation um that I was reading online from like the filmmakers and the cast is that in setting this in New York city, there's a degree of like anonymity and like there's too many people. And so no one cares. Yeah. Right. There's too many. Whereas when you're in Woodsboro, it's like you've got the cops on the line as the killer is killing you. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas here it's so big. It's so easy to get lost. You turn a corner and he's there. You turn a corner and he's not there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, and and they used that really effectively. I will also say, yeah. because they filmed this in Montreal, that this definitively proves my point, which I don't think I've ever said on the show, but which I've talked about in real life, that Montreal is the New York of Canada, not Toronto. Yeah. But uh, this, yeah, this <laughs> plants that flag, for sure. <laughs> for sure, it's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, a critique that I've seen online a lot about Scream 2022 Um is that there's not a lot of like something that makes the scream movies so iconic is a ghost face chasing somebody scene mm-hmm. like pursuing them and they have to they have to evade him and something i absolutely love about the ghost face killer is that they're kind of sloppy mm-hmm. they're tripping over their own shit you throw a vase at them and they're down for the count <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's kind of a trope throughout the whole series and there was a big critique of Scream 2022 not having many of those and not having those kind of big pursuit, Ghostface pursuey kind of sequences. This has them, but 
they're even more tense and the stakes are raised. And Ghostface isn't as sloppy. No. Like it seems very calculated. Yeah. Yeah. Very it was, tense. it was, yeah, it was great. Um, I do want to mention the pee pee poo poo not paying Nev Campbell of it all. Yeah. Okay. Because it's really disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, so Nev Campbell has been very transparent about why she didn't reprise her role as Sydney Prescott. So it'd be the first film that she's not in. Um, and I have a quote from her where she said, as a woman, I have had to work extremely hard in my career to establish my value, especially when it comes to scream. I felt the offer that was presented to me did not equate to the value I have brought to the franchise. It's been a very difficult decision to move on to all my scream fans. I love you. You've always been so incredibly supportive to me. I'm forever grateful to you and to what this franchise has given me over the past 25 years. Yeah. And then Matthew Lillard mm-hmm. from the original Scream um, kind of spoke out in support of her and, and you know, was saying a lot of, like, pay Nev what she wants. But he also said, like, do you think Tom Cruise took less money for uh, Top Gun Maverick? You know, and he so he was really speaking to, again, the double standard of it, right? And mm-hmm. I just think it, it's really disappointing. It truly is because Nev Campbell, I mean, she was in Scream 2022 and... I really love see like it's always a great moment whenever you go see these movies and Nev Campbell comes up on screen and people are just like oh Cindy Prescott. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. you feel it in the audience and she's just this other kind of female hero that's not a scream queen. Mm-hmm. Like there's a a toughness to her even in the original scream where she's just a high school student. And I felt like that's what they were trying to do in the original scream, right? Is subvert the traditional way that we see the final girl Mm -hmm. um and and that's been done so well and i feel like it is because it wasn't a decision made about story but it was a decision made about money it's really disappointing it's really pee pee poo poo yeah Yeah. um and and she's had a lot of her castmates and other people like both from this scream and from previous iterations of it support her in in that and i think that's really lovely that is cool yeah um one other piece of trivia I need to need to say because I love it so much. Did you know that Roger Jackson, who does the voice of Ghostface, also does the voice of Mojo Jojo in the Powerpuff Girls? I think I did know that. And so, I love that so much. If you look closely in the subway scene, and I, I really need to see this movie again, there's like a lot because it's, it's set during Halloween. There's like a pinhead and a Freddy Krueger and the girls from The Shining I guess there's also a Mojo Jojo. Amazing. I didn't see it, but I like I need to go back and see it. Yeah. Uh, I really want to when you're when I'm watching it and I know what's going to happen so I don't have to be so focused on like the tension. I want to really scan mm-hmm. for the costumes. Love that. I love when film and TV have a Halloween mm-hmm. episode and you get to see all the costumes. It's really fun. Yeah. Well, so I, what, one of the last things I'll say about this movie is that I love that it does pay respect to what came before it. As hinted at before, um, we get another Heroes cast member show up in in this movie um, who was in Scream 4 in Hayden Panetere. Yeah. Um, Maybe. Yeah. Uh, Sorry if I... Panetere? I don't know. I don't know. To the cheerleader. Um, But something I've kind of realized about the series, with the exception of the first one, which will always be a five out of five for me, is that you know we rewatch when we rewatched Scream twenty twenty two, I dropped it from it was at a four for me after watching it once on the second watch went down to a three and a half like I think that there 
is a little bit of magic that is lost in all of the sequels, including like Scream 2 and 3, like from the original trilogy. Like I think that there's just... They're a little bit more fun on the first watch when you don't know who Ghostface is. Watching them again... I mean, that's always my criteria when I'm reevaluating a film on a second watch. Did knowing the whole film enhance the way I watch it a second time? Yeah. Or did it actually make me be like, oh, yeah, comforting. I liked it, but I didn't get anything new out of this. Yeah. Like, I don't think that's I, okay. I don't think I'd go any lower than like a three and a half. No, because they're still fun as shit. Because if somebody were to come up to me and be like, this weekend, scream marathon we're gonna watch all of them i would say yes i'd be down yeah because i just love the franchise so much Mm -hmm. but yeah agreed how to make you feel familiar fun Mm. and honestly i want that i mean i think still silly still scary not so different from any of the other ones to be a game changer but we love scream for a reason and so For now, I'm okay with them being familiar. Yeah. And the fact that we've gotten two of them in two years. Keep it coming. Yeah. I love it so much. How'd it make you feel? Uh, Just reaffirmed in me that I will always feel excited for another Ghostface who done it romp. Okay. For the next one, this is another movie that I've been circling for a while. And we're coming up on, well, as of this episode, it's our one-year anniversary of the show, I wanted to revisit some Bergman. So I chose the 1957 drama-slash-fantasy film, The Seventh Seal. It was written and directed by Ingmar Bergman. It stars Max von Sydow as Atonius Block, Gunnar Bjornstrand as Jones, Jones, uh, Bengt Eckerot as Death, and Nils Pup as Joff, and B.B. Anderson as Mia. Synopsis, a knight returning to Sweden after the Crusades seeks answers about life, death, and the existence of God as he plays chess against the Grim Reaper during the Black Plague. That synopsis is so badass. I know. And that's what I was here for, and that's what I was so excited to see in this film. So, yeah, I've been really itching to watch this. The reason I actually picked it, um, I don't think I told you this, is that one of my newly discovered, now, like, probably top three favorite bands is a band called nation of language highly recommend checking them out but they just released a new single from their upcoming album it's called soul obsession but they put out a music video for it and they reference seventh seal as being an inspiration Mm. for that music video and i totally i totally see it after now Mm -hmm. after seeing seventh seal so it's like you know what i've been thinking about picking this movie thank you nation of language (laughs) for solidifying my pick so what do you think of seventh seal It's so tricky because we watched our first Bergman, which was Persona, a little more than a year ago, and it blew my fucking mind. Amazing. I was like, where has this been all my life? I am obsessed. And Seventh Seal is such a well-regarded film that I was expecting to love it that much, and I didn't. I really liked it, and I really understand and see why it is so many people's favorite or in their tops. Um, but I think what it really helped me understand is 1950 cinema versus 1960 cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I was just like, this is not the experimental abstract 
vibe of persona that I loved so much. This feels more like it's on the cusp. Yeah, there's there's moments and those moments, holy hell did they get me. Yeah. But then it's interspersed with this kind of silly stuff or this like plot that's very plot. Yeah. Um I really thought it was going to be entirely him playing chess. <laughs> it wasn't. Yeah, and that's what my I, bad. <laughs> like the opening scene with very schmexy Max von Holy moly, that man's face is a work of art. And he has like the freaking like Roy Batty from Blade Runner blonde hair. Yeah. Um, Like from the opening scene of him on the beach and then death coming into the picture. I just I was so prepared for, yeah, just this kind of confrontation with death and like conversations and like flashes of like life and death and like what it all means man like getting into it and just really cool cinematography but yeah then like you described it and i think you described it perfectly as it feels very kind of shakespearean yeah where it has these existential moments that are so compelling but then it has the comedic relief Mm -hmm. um you know yof and mia are really that like comedic relief their kind of storyline um and then it has that more actiony historical stuff. The other thing I'll say, I think why like Persona spoke to me so much in this one less so, even though I, I want to be clear, I really like this movie. And I do understand the um the reason it's so well regarded. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is that I just don't know that much about religion. Mm-hmm. And this is a deeply existential film about faith. Yeah. And I think there is a lot of very specific religious reference yeah. that is lost on me mm-hmm. because I've been raised without religion. Um, I am compelled by explorations of faith mm-hmm. because I think faith doesn't always have to be just about religion. And the moments where it got more like that, like there, there's this, I think it's when he's talking to the priest and he talks about like, what about people who want to believe and they can't? Like, and, mm-hmm. and he has kind of these more existential questions. And I was like, this, this, this is what I want. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, I've read and we watched a little featurette that like Bergman made this to confront his own fear of death. Mm-hmm. Spoken on the show a lot about how I have a pretty extreme fear of death. Um, I think I'd like to revisit this now, knowing what it is, mm-hmm. and like really looking for that part of it. The other thing for me, though, is like medieval stuff, just like in me, I can't help it. It's medieval. I'm like falling asleep. Yeah. Too much chain mail. <laughs> the only chain mail I will accept is Grogu's. That's our <laughs> chain mail. Yeah. I, and like, I don't want to say that I was disappointed because that seems way too harsh and too critical <laughs> of it. It's just it really wasn't what I was expecting and what I thought I was signing up for. Which is an us problem, not a the film problem. A hundred percent. And like the other thing that made it feel, for lack of a better word, old on top of kind of the Shakespearean plot of it all. Not It wasn't like a hundred percent like that, but like just the 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 vibe of that. But the music, like some of the music cues just felt very 1950s. 1950s. Um, and yeah, like I said, like there's just shades of Bergman and the work he was doing in the sixties that we saw in persona that it's like, I wanted more of that. And when we veered away from that and kind of the abstract and the more nebulous kind of stuff, 
that's where I was, it, it was just not hooking me the way I wanted it to or that I was expecting it to maybe. Um, but I agree with you. The I ending. Wa- I want to revisit it in the future. Yeah. The ending is phenomenal. Yeah. And there's some really interesting things that I will talk to you about after that I can't speak about because I would <laughs> spoil the film. Um, but the ending is really, really phenomenal. Um I also like I you know I picture what would it have been like to watch this in 1957? Mhm. Mind blowing, right? Yeah. Like your parents weren't alive, my parents were 1 year old. Mm-hmm. Like I just it's wild. Also, I mean you don't get Bill and Ted's bogus journey without this movie. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Um I did read something really so <laughs> don't care about the medieval stuff. I I just I don't really like period pieces. And mm-hmm. this is, you know, when made in 1957, this was a period piece. Just like, you know, I'm not really that into like The Crown and Dent- Downton Abbey. I don't know if that's a period piece or like Jane Austen, any of that stuff. Um, but I guess there's a lot of historical inaccuracy in this. Oh, yeah. Which like I wouldn't know. Shakespeare was really into that, too. He's like, I don't care. I'm going to write what I write. I don't care if that thing didn't exist in this time. Yeah. But I, I read this quote on Wikipedia and I thought it was really interesting. So... Uh, this is uh, a film critic named John John Aberth speaking about the historical accuracy and inaccuracy within the film. Uh, and he said, the film only partially succeeds in conveying the period atmosphere and thought world of the 14th century. Bergman would probably counter that it was never his intention to make a historical or period film, as it was written in a program note that accompanied the movie's premiere. Quote, it is a modern poem presented with medieval material that has been freely handled. The script, in particular, embodies a mid-20th century existential angst. Still, to be fair to Bergman, one must allow him his artistic license. And the script's modernisms may be justified as giving the movie's medieval theme a compelling and urgent contemporary relevance. Yet the film succeeds to a large degree because it is set in the Middle Ages, a time that can seem both very remote and very immediate to us living in the modern world. Ultimately, The Seventh Seal should be judged as a historical film by how well it combines the medieval and the modern. Yeah, I I see that. I mean, it's no knight's tale. (laughs) I will say... um, the exploration of existentialism, human connection, and illness mm-hmm. felt very of the now. Yeah, in a really scarily, sad, scary way. Scarily so, yeah. Um. Yeah, I do. I want to revisit it. I want to revisit it. Yeah. No, I. I agree. It's just I. It's frustrating to see the brilliance in it, and. Ha- and and not uh, be able to have that brilliance kind of wash over you the way you would like it to. Yeah, and I know there's so many people who it does feel that way for. Yeah. So either it's going to happen on a second or third viewing, or as is the beautiful thing about art, it is that for some people and it's not for me, and that's okay. There are some people who do not like After Sun. They are wrong, <laughs> but it is beautiful. That that art can exist for me, but it doesn't have to exist for everyone. That's the point of it. That's why we need art. We need so much art. We need so much art by the same person because what one person's favorite Bergman is is going to be different from, and not even favorite, what really connects with one person in a Bergman film might be a different one for somebody else. And I love that. I think that's important. Yeah, 100%. And, and you know what? Maybe it is it's just reaffirming how much we love 60s cinema and maybe love 60s Bergman. And is and is really cool to see how that 
shift in what was happening in art can be seen in his own work, right? That his work can feel so different in 1957 versus whatever year Persona came out in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm glad we finally got to watch it, though. Um, and it was, while it was this sort of push and pull kind of experience, I'm, st- I'm still grateful for it. How did it make you feel? It made me feel reaffirmed in my 1960 starting point for loving cinema. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, unfortunately, but mm-hmm. yeah. How about you? Yeah, you know, in a way, I was surprised, but it also made me feel kind of reflective, uh, not just on the film, but on my kind of view on Bergman and his work. But also at the same time, excited to delve to delve even further into Bergman's work. So yeah, it was just kind of like this stew of emotions. Um, I love that even though the film didn't necessarily like boom, bang, five out of five, that it brought up a lot of questions and made me kind of confront my feelings about it. And that's what I love. That's what I love when films are able to do that. Okay. Last film. Last macaroni, babe. Oh, yes. Smack me with it. So uh, we went to the theater again. We had a lovely family brunch dinner celebrate my mom's birthday played mario kart with the nibblings watched honey i shrunk the kids in part with the nibblings reaffirming our rad wreck of last week which is watch films with the young people in your life because it is fun when your seven-year-old nephew is being like oh my goodness he's gonna squish him it's just like it's so it's so fun uh but then we went to the theater and we saw the 1969 nice <laughs> drama film Funeral Parade of Roses. It was directed and written by Toshio Matsumoto. It stars Pita as Eddie, Asumu Ogasawara, Asuma, okay, Asumu Ogasawara as Leida, Yoshimi Joe as Jimmy, and Kochi Nakamura as Juju. Synopsis: The trials and tribulations of Eddie and other trans feminine people in Japan. I was really excited for this. Mm-hmm. It was late on a Saturday night. Mm-hmm. What did you think of Funeral Parade of Roses? Yeah, this was pretty astounding. Yeah. Like for a film that came out in the late 60s, I I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong just because of I haven't been exposed to many films like this, but I, I just don't, don't think or haven't seen movies like this that have come out more recently. No. So this was the thing. And it was so interesting watching this off the heels of the seventh seal where we were like, Oh, we didn't love that as much as we thought we would. And it was so good, but we just thought we were going to be like five out of five, one of my favorite films ever. And we didn't feel that way. And then seeing this, which is made in the sixties. And I'm like, yes, 1960s. Yes. Yes. But one of the things that I noticed is I was like, this just feels so much more daring and innovative, both in what it's exploring Mm -hmm. and in filmmaking technique than anything that's coming out right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the way that it plays with pacing, with edits. With genre? Yeah, with genre, um, just general absurdism. Yeah. Um, It's 100% my thing. Yeah. And just like 
the ability for them in this film to have really beautiful shots. And then there's a lot of those shots, which kind of result in viewer whiplash because it'll, it'll hold us there and then it'll take us somewhere else, whether that's visually or tonally. Yeah. Yeah. And it's done so effectively. Cause it has this blend of like drama, Mm -hmm. which is the genre that it's listed as, but then it has this like these really like slap sticky, like do 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 like kind of thing going on. <laughs> yeah. And then it has these like really abstract experimental moments. Then it like kind of shifts into documentary sometimes. And then it's like full on horror at other times. It's so fascinating and yet it blends together in this really captivating way that just had me hooked. Mm-hmm. It was it's really quiet, except for when it's loud. Yeah. Um so it was one of those films, kind of like when we saw Skinnamarink, where even when the audience is being really great, you can hear every rustle. Mm-hmm. Like people were pretty good. There was a couple whisper whis- whisperies in the back. Sometimes mm-hmm. they were pretty good, but like <laughs> somebody was like had a bag of chips or something, and it was just you hear everything. Every every time someone drops their phone, I hate that sound. Yeah, <laughs> dropping your phone in a theater. Um, so I'd really like to revisit this at home. Yeah, I agree. I'd like to uh I'd like to point out too like I I feel like there's something about this style of Japanese cinema that I really like cuz it, it a lot of the techniques and some of the things that were done are kind of reminiscent of what we've seen in House. That is the number one recommended if you like this you'll also like on IMDb is House. Nice. I get that. Cuz like this isn't rooted necessarily in the horror genre where House is. Mhm but they both kind of pull on those really interesting, tropey, kind of cheesy over the top. So you are lucky, my love. Okay. That this is part of a movement in Japan called Japanese New Wave. Ah. So we just have to look at other Japanese New Wave films and you're probably going to like them. Yeah, that's great. That were It was kind of 60s, 70s, I believe. Um, and there was a group of filmmakers. It's kind of like that new French extremity, right? Where mm-hmm. there's this, this this crop of filmmakers that were making film that had similar techniques and themes. Um, but there's certain names very much associated with Japanese New Wave. And uh, Toshio Matsumoto is one of them. But there's others as well. So okay. I think we have some watching to do. Nice. That's amazing. I mean, I found there to be so many breathtaking sequences in this yeah i agree there's there's some that'll be standout moments for me from this film especially the ending and i I mean something else that's just breathtaking overall is just the queer storytelling that's on display here that's where i'm like this this feels so much more daring than what's happening now because i'm like we have like these very sensual, beautiful, but not graphic mm-hmm. and consistent, like interspersed throughout the film, like queer love making scenes that are just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And they're like like transgender sex worker love scenes that are not judged. They're not salacious. Mm-hmm. They're not meant to be titillating. Like they're meant to be beautiful and artful and... Why is more of that not happening now? Or maybe we're just not looking in the right places. Yeah, I if, don't know. If it exists somewhere, 
and you know this film or after watching this film, you can point us in the direction of more contemporary films that are being made like this. Let us know. Yeah. Yeah. Dad, dot rad dad on Instagram. Yeah. I don't know. I just found, and I found the character of Eddie to be so compelling. Mm-hmm. And I really like, so the film is nonlinear and I, I love a nonlinear film. Yeah. Um, and the way that it's, the way that it uses nonlinearity becomes very um, surreal. It, it, like you said, it causes it can cause like viewer whiplash or like you, you're not quite sure what's going on. Like that dream logic kind of thing. It's like super queer memento, but better. Yeah, but yeah. Less Christopher Nolan-y, more fun Japanese new wave. <laughs> <laughs> um, interesting. The one interesting piece of trivia that I found about this is, I guess this was um one of the most prominent pieces of inspiration for Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. And that if you, Mm. that if we were to go watch A Clockwork Orange, we would actually see um, segments of it that are basically ripping this off. I can see that. I haven't seen it in so long, but I guess like there's a shopping sequence that's almost identical to this. Um, I even see like the kind of, this the the sex scene that happens in clockwork orange i don't remember it but i believe you but it's like it's like kind of the hyper sped up mm. with like benny hill music over top mm-hmm. kind of thing they use that throughout this film too like i could see that that inspiration now what i don't know is how much stanley kubrick was crediting this film or to what degree he was just ripping it off i yeah one thing to homage and say, I saw this film and it blew my mind. Kind of like we've heard Bergman do- did with Tarkovsky being like, I saw his stuff and it changed the landscape of how I see cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, or when we were talking about like Greta Gerwig and Claire Denis, like being like, this is influencing me and I'm paying homage to it and I am and I love it. And it's so brilliant and important to you should go watch it too. Or is it just, oh, I saw this thing and now I'm going to steal it. Make it seem like it's my own. Kubrick, Kubrick seems like he would do that he one. He seems more doinky. But I, I haven't looked into it enough to know for sure. If if you know whether Kubrick was a doink or not. <laughs> I lean, Just watch the back behind the scenes stuff about The Shining and yeah. you'll have your answer. <laughs> I lean more doink. Yeah. I lean more doink. Stanley Kubrick, he leans more doink. <laughs> enough about Stanley Kubrick though. This film... Blew my mind. I want to watch it again and again. On Criterion. I don't believe it is. Should be. Agreed. I think though, um, I read somewhere that it's on the internet archives for free. That like Oh nice. You can like you can watch it online for free. So cool. But it'd be this is one I wouldn't mind having a Blu-ray of. A Blue Raymond. A Blue Raymond. Um really grateful to have seen it in the theater. Yeah. Also looking forward to getting to see it at home. How did it make you feel? It made me feel stoked on 60s cinema. Just, I, I love being reaffirmed that we love 60s cinema and that we're continuing to discover it and we're discovering it together. I, I really like this journey that we're on. And I was also just in awe of the queer storytelling that was on display. I didn't expect it to the degree that it was there and how it was being represented. Yeah. So surprised, but pleasantly so. How about you? The way that this was filmed, it made me feel transported to another time and place. Like like that very special thing when cinema can like grab you, transport you, hypnotize you, and you like feel like you are there. Yeah. It was fantastic. Yeah. Also the title rocks. Keep flicked. 
messing it up in my mind. Like I'm like funeral roses of parade. That's stupid. <laughs> that is stupid. <laughs> funeral parade of roses. All right. You ready to talk about some dads? Yeah, from Smackaroonies to Dadaroonies. Dads of the week, baby. Who is your bad dad nominee? I feel like we got the same one. Maybe not, because I feel like I did something weird. All right. Go ahead. I picked Ghostface. <laughs> okay. Tell me why Ghostface <laughs> is a bad dad. So while I am talking about Scream 6, I also am just like Ghostface throughout the franchise. Like Ghostface not as in the person behind Ghostface, but Ghostface as like a concept. Yeah, yeah. Like Ghostface. Well, I mean, I wouldn't want Ghostface as a dad. No. So Ghostface is a gaslighter for sure. Um, a stalker for sure. Murderer for sure. Secretive. I mean, if you want that for a dad, you got to maybe... Just- Gotta check yourself a little bit. I mean, bit. I'd, like, let me try and convince you a little bit better. We think of this symbolically. Ghostface would be like a dad who won't show you who he really is. Mm-hmm. Until it's to his benefit. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, I know it's silly, but. Interesting, interesting, interesting. I chose Mr. Fox. I know. I even said when we were watching Fantastic Mr. Fox, well, we know who Bad Dad of the Week's going to be. Yeah. It was just solidified by the end of the film. Um, the main thing that I kind of took away of what makes him a bad dad is that other people are lucky that he has allowed them to be a part of his life. Yep. And that's the vibe he puts out there. It, and it's we've already talked about it. It's It's pure, selfish actions that he takes. He does what he wants, when he wants, with no regard for the greater rippling consequences for the other people in his life, for his community. And, you know, like, sure, he learns stuff along the way, but I feel like at his core, he's still going to fantastic Mr. Fox people the way that I do with you. That, that was the struggle I had, is I do feel like the film is about him coming to terms with the selfishness that he's had. And there's a particular moment with him and Ash near the end of the film where I do feel like he understands the damage he's caused and he's going to be more mindful moving forward. And I don't think he's going to be perfect. I agree. Mm -hmm. I think he's still going to fantastic Mr. Fox people, but I think he's going to be more receptive to being called out on it. And I think he's going to be more reflective of the moments that he does it. And so I struggled with that because I'm like, he is perhaps one of the most infuriating characters I've ever seen ever. But I feel like by the end of the film, there's glimmers that he is recognizing that in himself and and moving towards change. And, you know, who knows? Maybe there's a therapist in the sewers that are a little help out. Are we really going to make Ghostface the bad dad? I'm going to leave it up to you make the choice i'm struggling because i feel like for most of the movie mr fox is the bad dad but for all the movies ghostface is a bad dad oh my god i also picked ghostface because of who i picked for rad dad so Mm. okay let's I think when we inevitably do a deep dive on fantastic mr fox i think there's going to be some very important things to dig into about what Mr. Fox helps us understand about dads. 
But I think to write him off completely as bad dad of the week is perhaps too harsh. Okay. I'll acquiesce to that. Okay. All right. Good link. Good vocab. Thanks. All right, Ghostface. Don't, Don't be, be our, our dad. dad. Okay. Rad, Rad dad, dad of the week. I picked Christofferson. That's what I picked. Oh, yeah, nice. That's what, I was like, I didn't want to double fox it. <laughs> it's interesting because um, Christofferson from Fantastic Mr. Fox, I was between him and I was thinking about Mrs. Fox, but I actually feel like who I would want as a dad is Christofferson. Is Christofferson. Yeah. I mean, I throughout the film, I feel like he is rife with kindness. He's very thoughtful and he's there for his family. Yeah. Um, even in moments where maybe he shouldn't be, mm-hmm. he still like stands up for and is there to support um, and in some cases protect his family. And I think he's just fundamentally good. Mm-hmm. And I feel like his thoughtfulness leads to him also being reflective mm-hmm. on things. I just get that vibe from him. He's just a really good little fox. Yeah, I think there's a degree to which if Mr. Fox is a contender for bad dad, which he was and would continue to be, there's a degree to which Mrs. Fox, how can she be rad dad if she allows that? Mm -hmm. I think that's what I was struggling with. I think she's pretty great, but I think she enables some of Fox's behavior in a way that is harmful to Ash. Mm Mm-hmm. So I I also picked Chris Christopherson um, because he's so gentle and yet so confident. Mm -hmm. Like he knows who he is and like nobody's going to tell him not to be like that. Mm -hmm. But and he and he will stand up for himself. But in the gentlest, kindest way, he's also forgiving and understanding. Like Ash is a total dink to him. Yeah. And he'll call him out on it. But he also... Like the, one of the best moments is the moment with the train set. Yeah. And I mean, I think Christofferson has every right to just be like, fuck you, Ash. Mm-hmm. But instead, they just have this moment together. I don't know. I agree. He's just a good little fox. I'd yeah. be happy for him to be my dad. Nice. So Christofferson. Be your dad. dad. Okay. Rad wreck of the week. We kind of hinted at it a little bit earlier with the, the Jasmine Savoy Brown of it all. Um, so one of our, a band that we really like, Boy Genius, made up of three freaking superstars in Julian Baker, Phoebe Bridgers, and Lucy Dacus. Um, they each have their own solo projects and Lucy Dacus released a music video for her song Night Shift this week. And it's awesome. It's so good. It's, uh, and we, we want to rad wreck it because, uh, and we'll put a link in the description to the music video. But it has Jasmine Savoy Brown in it, but it's rife with movie stuff. It's specifically Wizard of Oz stuff. Which is, Wizard of Oz is one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. And I believe, I believe, I believe that Metro Cinema has in the past done a Dark Side of the Moon Wizard of Oz mashup, and I desperately would like to go see that. Yeah, and I hope great. they do it again. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, the music video it has a bunch of other cameos in there too. But it's also directed by, oh, what's the person's name? Uh, Jane Schoenbrunn, who did um, We're All Going going to the World's Fair. Yeah. Um, And the aesthetic is just so tight. Oh, It's so good. It's phenomenal. 
but that's our red record of the week go check it out the tune is awesome the music video makes it even more awesome and we will post a link in the show notes go for it thank you so much for listening it's a lot of smackaroonies lately but if you're going to watch 365 movies in a year there's got to be a lot of smackaroonies yeah thanks for smacking the smackaroonies with us yeah um we drop a new episode every thursday and you can follow us and sign into our DMs over on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. And we would absolutely love you forever. If you share us with the rad people in your life, drop us a rating, follow, or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. Thank you so much for listening to us for a year. Yeah. This is, is kind of nuts that we've been doing this for a year. It was a pretty wild time of our life when we started this podcast and now it has simmered slightly. <laughs> um, but thanks for being along for the ride. We love you. But that's going to do it for these fantastic little foxes this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.